0: Hey, it's Andrew Patrick Finelli, and we're starting today with a quick bit of info. This is our season one finale, and what that means is we're back with season two on Tuesday, October 5th. That's right, season two, episode one airs Tuesday, October 5th. So please stay tuned to our Instagram at badbandgreatsong where we will be posting and updating you all regularly as we take a look back at season one and we preview season two. And just quickly, personally, on on behalf of me and Jerry, thank you, (laughs) folks. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. We spent a year, a solid year, July 2020 to July 2021. We spent a year developing this show and Being able to share the first season with all of you has been absolutely phenomenal. Thank you. I can't thank you all enough. Thank you so much. Thank you for being part of this, folks at home. Remember, Season 2, Episode 1, Tuesday, October 5th. Stay tuned to our Instagram, at badbandgreatsong. And with all of that said... You're listening to Ghost Radio, Station 0.5. It's the Devil in the Dive, and up next is another rad episode of Bad Band Great Song. (laughs) Hello, folks, and welcome to the season one finale of the podcast that will piss you off. This is Bad Band, Great Song. I am your host, Andrew Patrick Finelli, and I am joined by your other host of the show, Jeremy Cohen. Jerry! How
1: you doing,
0: and how you been? <laughs> the band we're focusing our critique on today is Millie Vanilli, and their song, Girl, You Know It's True. Girl, you know it's true.
1: Girl you know it's girl you know it's girl you know it's girl you know it's girl know it girl you know it girl you know it girl you <laughs> know, know, it, girl, know it's know true it's- is
0: the record setting debut single and defining moment for better and for worse for Millie Vanelli the song was born in a basement In Annapolis, Maryland, USA, and big-budget remade in a million-dollar studio in Frankfurt, Germany. Yeah. Girl, you know it's true. Set the world on fire from 1989 to 1991. The faces of the group, Rob Pilatus and Fabrice Morvan, are victims of circumstance. And also one of the most important pop groups of all time. Just (laughs) for all the wrong reasons.
1: I wonder if they know that by now. (laughs) And if they've like fully accepted that as fact at this point, well, Fab at
0: least. Yeah. Thanks. I was gonna say I don't know. I don't think there's many thoughts going through Rob's head right now. We'll get to that though, folks. Yeah. We'll get to that.
1: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. But you know, you can make history for the wrong reasons and still kind of feel good about making history, right?
0: You absolutely can. And you know what? I think Fab does. But he's kind of come out on the other side. Oh, folks, this is this is this is. I can't wait to get to the story, but, but 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 before we get there, let's make it clear. I didn't think, I didn't think anyway that Millie Vanilli had their stands. I wasn't, I wasn't really sure if they were out there. You know, I, I, I didn't think that anybody's gonna fight us when we say Millie Vanilli is a bad band, right? No, no, yeah, no. There will be there's absolutely gonna be people who will fight us. Millie Vanilli absolutely somehow has their stands. Thank you, internet. Thank you, thank you so much for bringing folks together. But as always, folks, while we look at that, we are not here to prove to the fans whether or not their favorite band, Millie Vanilli, is bad. No, we're looking to, to challenge the skeptics to recognize the greatness of their song, Curly Notes True. So, <laughs> as always, and for the last time in season one, before the first time in season two... <laughs> yeah, right, that's how that works <laughs> We're going to examine Millie Vanilli and the song Girl You Know It's True in detail to articulate how and why to make the case that though Millie Vanilli is a bad band, Girl You Know It's True is a great song So, let's get into segment two and look at the group's story <laughs> From Baltimore to the world that's one way this story could start. Or uh, maybe our story starts in uh, New York with the birth of Rob Pilatus, the son of an American soldier and a German stripper, before being adopted by German parents and growing up in Munich, Germany.
1: All right, cool. Let's start there.
0: Oh, uh, no, no, no. Maybe, maybe, maybe actually the story starts in the, the Caribbean island of Guadalupe, where Fabrice Morvan was born and raised, uh, but before being raised in Paris, France, actually.
1: Oh, okay. We could start there if you prefer.
0: Um, well, no. Maybe, actually, the story starts at a dance seminar in Los Angeles, where Rob and Fab miraculously met for the first time. That works for me. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, one more. Uh, Maybe, uh, actually, though, the story starts in Munich, Munich, Germany. But in 1988, when Fab moved to Munich and eventually reconnected with Rob.
1: That would also be an acceptable start. Or
0: maybe... Maybe it's further back.
1: In the beginning.
0: But how far back can a single thread really go? Where do you find the one key point of origin, the the anchor, the backstitch, before one thread is woven deeply into other fabrics, crossed with other threads? (laughs) Milli Vanilli's story is just one swath of fabric that this single thread has been stitched into. German producer Frank Farian is that thread. And though Milli Vanilli is the most important piece of this patchwork, our story doesn't start with them. Frank Farian is a quiet, calculating, and observant craftsman. Is he an artist? Yes. Does he have an artist's spirit? <laughs> I'd say more of a scientist's. Yeah. Farian, born Franz Rutter, began his career as a chef, taking ingredients he didn't cultivate and creating concocted dishes. That
1: is an absurd way to describe a chef, but I hear you.
0: I'm an absurd kind of guy, and threads, threads. But soon, he would transition into a career in music. He began covering artists like Otis Redding before eventually writing, recording, producing, and performing his own material. It was mostly listless, pre-disco, jangly AM pop inflected with the romping and cartoonish qualities of late 60s German pop music. He, uh, his work could be classed as a sort of German music called Schlager music. Schlager. Schlager music is often referred to as strange, embarrassing, and a uniquely German thing. <laughs> and, like, it is a uniquely German thing, but I'm not sure how strange it is. It's pop music, folks. If you listen to Schlager music, and I'm not, fuck it, I suggest you should. It's overly cheery, hokey, and goofy-sounding German fucking white person music. But you know what? Isn't that a lot of pop music anyway? How about that? What defines Schlager music, though, and and defines it so hard is its incorporation of traditional sounds found in German folk music and, and possibly operetta as well. It's definitely goofy, but it's not quite as strange and mysterious as sources make it out to be.
1: Well, I think you just hit it exactly nail on the head right there. What makes it so strange to us Americans is mm-hmm. none of those sounds or tones or anything really resonate, right, with, right. at least with me personally on a real level. It just feels like super Aryan youth to me, you know? <laughs>
0: there I you know what I get that yeah I completely understand which maybe is part of why so many Germans are embarrassed of it
1: right <laughs> yeah. right right
0: that might be an implicit part of that Germans let us know at bad band great song on Instagram Facebook at just show on Twitter uh, and uh uh bat, at bad band great song at gmail.com let us let us let us know why are you so embarrassed about Schlager music Anyway, folks, just know Schlager has changed considerably over time while still maintaining some defining characteristics. If you explore Schlager music... (laughs) What a sentence. If you explore Schlager music, expect to actually hear a wide range, a much wider range of styles and sounds than than some articles might lead you on to to expect.
1: I listened to some, (laughs) and all I could hear was uh, the verses from 99 (laughs) Red Balloons. Just over and over in all the songs. It was just that. And I don't know. It's pretty fucking strange and super popular. A Schlager music video that I saw that was recently uploaded had millions of views right. already.
0: Yes, 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 yes. So I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say it's the, it's the Chugi. It's the Chugi people of Germany that listen to Schlager music to this day. It's got to be those whoever the live, laugh, love motherfuckers in, in Germany are. They're the ones listening to Schlager. Got it. Germans, let us know. Am I right? How am I Germaning? Please tell us. Does your mom listen to
1: Schlager? Yes.
0: Also 99 Luft Balloons, huh? Luft balloons. Mm, interesting. I wonder if Nena is a bad ph it's something to look into. I don't know. Well I don't know. folks. Just just to bring this all home, consider for, for, uh, for you or for the American ears, consider whatever a Partridge family song sounds like to you in your head, just with more like oompa boompy oompy oompy doop doop boop <laughs> like overly cheery, very later hosen qualities, and you're hearing approximately Frank Farian's early music, late 60s, early 70s Schlager music.
1: Exactly, you're hearing it. Creepy <laughs> as fuck. <laughs> uh,
0: and on that note... I, uh, maybe there was a little anti-horniness written into the script. As, as the next, par- <laughs> as the next <laughs> paragraph begins, because I wrote it, Farian is not a sexy man.
1: <laughs> he's, I mean, he's really not, though. It's inarguable.
0: <laughs> uh, just as inarguable as me saying I am me and I can't help it. Anyway, Fra- Farian is not a sexy man. He never was. And he knew that. He also knew his songs were good enough, and his understanding of what sounds appealed to people was strong enough that his lack of success didn't make much sense. Well, unless you consider the importance of appearance, and again, Farian is not sexy. Oh, uh, uh, and I, I should note, I should note, when Farian would perform live on television in the late 60s and early 70s, he did indeed Mm. Hmm, Lip-sync? how about that? As was common, then, for television performances, and still is. Just typically, artists lip-sync to themselves, not other people. We'll get there, we'll get there. Girl, you know it's, girl, you know it's, girl, you know it's, girl, you know it's, true that we'll get there. By 1976, Farian realized he needed new faces and bodies, other faces and bodies, for the presentation and performance of his new music.
1: I wonder, I'm so curious, what that moment was like for him. You it was
0: like, like looking in the mirror with very sad music playing in the like, background. You know,
1: like, probably his own music. Yeah. And he was like, you know what? <laughs> My music is fucking hotter than I am. I got to switch this <laughs> shit up. <laughs> like where... where I, <sighs>
0: wow! That's, that is so Like was so good. it a slow
1: thing? Did someone tell him? I'm going
0: to say... I'm going to answer you honestly. I don't know if that's what you're looking for, but I'm going to say it's a slow thing he realized over the course of his early career.
1: Sure. I wonder, though, if someone just told him.
0: (laughs) Maybe maybe not the time girlfriend. Like, Frank, you're just not that sexy. Exactly. (laughs) I went to theater school. That German accent was unacceptable. I'm so sorry, folks. Anyway, (laughs) the point is, he needed front people who weren't him.
1: Yeah. Harsh realization.
0: For sure. Maybe somebody told him. Maybe you're right. Who knows? But he also realized at some point, (laughs) repurposing familiar songs was a sound strategy for appealing to people. Mm, Isn't that interesting? Huh? Yeah. So Farian took part in the rich Western tradition of fetishizing, exploiting, and stealing from black people. Enter. Prince Buster, the legendary Jamaican producer, singer, and songwriter. Farian heard his song, Al Capone, and thought to himself, Oh, I could do something with that, yes. Damn, these German accents aren't
1: working. You're really not, you're (laughs) really not going to get to character I could
0: do something. Never mind, I'm going to stop doing that.
1: That is a vampire.
0: (laughs) 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 Well, Farian is kind of... Vampire ish. Yeah, that's yeah, not vampire-ish. me trying to just backwards engineer justification for my poor accent. I am going to, he is kind of vampirish. Anyway.
1: Anyway, yeah. He's, well, well, he wasn't the only one to steal that song, was what I was going to say before. Okay. The specials went on to cover, well, basically rewrite the song, added a bunch of lyrics, changed the name.
0: Interesting. Interesting. They, okay. K- that's a good point.
1: But they, you know, kept uh, some traits of it. It's one of their biggest songs.
0: Right. Right. Well, and you know, I don't mean to speculate. I don't know the story of that song, but I I I wonder if perhaps the specials went about it in a little bit more of an ethical way than Frank Farian did it. Yeah. yeah, As well. You know what I'm saying?
1: (laughs) Right. No, as I say, you know, they basically totally rewrote it and added a bunch of lyrics. They just took it was like a sample, early sampling.
0: Oh, there you go. Well, anyway, after hearing Al Capone and realizing that he could actually do something with that song, (laughs) Farian then created the group Boney M, featuring Black vocalists lip-syncing to a song Farian, quote, wrote. And by wrote, I mean stole and repurposed. Farian's song, Baby, Do You Wanna Bump, essentially is a, a, a remix of Al Capone, became a massive hit for Boney M. On stage, the women in Boney M, Liz Mitchell, Marcia Barrett, and Maisie Williams, lip-synced to their own vocals. But the male performer, Bobby Farrell, lip-synced to vocals recorded by Farian himself, in effect putting his own white German voice inside the body of a black man.
1: is probably most famous for that one song, Rasputin.
0: That, for sure.
1: Ra rah, Rasputin, Russia's greatest love machine. <laughs> blah, 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 something like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that was a huge that song one. of theirs.
1: Yeah, that was a big one.
0: And yeah, mm, this, uh, on that, that odd, strange note of fetishization. Yes, folks, this is, this is how today's story starts. Or, well, actually, our story could start somewhere else.
1: I think we're deep enough into the podcast at this point that technically the story has already started, <laughs> Andy. We've, we're like, this is the beginning of chapter four.
0: This may be a little late. This may be a little uh, yeah, late. We can right, be yeah.
1: starting the story now.
0: Well, Let's go to another point in the story, then, perhaps, I should say. Deal. From Baltimore to the world. Or, more specifically, from songwriter Bill Petaway Jr.'s trash bin in Annapolis to the world. In the mid-'80s, Petaway Jr. was a songwriter working on music in the basement of his Annapolis home, when he would receive a fateful timeshare telemarketing call that would introduce him to a man named Kevin K.G. Lyles and his legendary Baltimore hip-hop crew, New Marks.
1: Wait, what? A fateful timeshare telemarketing call? That is a sentence that has (laughs) never been said before, (laughs) for sure.
0: Definitely a new sentence, man. New sentence. (laughs) That's one for the subreddit, dude. Oh, man. New comprised childhood friends Sean DJ Spen Spencer DJ Wayne beatmaster Mo Mallory Kevin KG Lyles Daryl Junie Jams Mims and Rodney Cool Rod Holloman The crew came down to Petaway Jr.'s basement studio and fished out a cassette from his trash bin What they heard was a sketch of a song that would eventually become New Girl You Know It's True Girl You Know It's Yes You Know It's True Oh, oh, oh. Smile and everything you do, don't you understand? Girl, this love is true. Your soft, and hand, long, sweet and thin. That candle, like a pectin, upon your skin, it lightens up my day, and that's also true. Together, we're one, separated with two to make it all mine. All mine is my desire because you contain qualities I admire. To put it plain and simple, you rule my world, so try to understand. The love, girl. This is true. the song was carefully crafted by Petaway Jr., the New Marks crew, and Kai Adiemo from funk band Starpoint. Girl You Know It's True became a regional hit in America in 1987, distributed via Oxenhill, Maryland's Studio Records. After selling roughly 8,000 copies locally, a small bidding war of sorts began overseas. The boys in Baltimore received various low-ball offers from German labels that wanted to sign them as artists and publish their song. All offers were turned down at the behest of Newmark's parents. But eventually they would discover that their song had been stolen. And it was becoming one of the biggest songs in the entire world. And the ultimate betrayal was made close to home. The owner of Studio Records had clandestinely and shadily licensed Girl You Know It's True without consent, to various overseas labels, including Bluebird Records in London and ZYX in Germany, allowing Girl You Know It's True to be heard by a certain German record producer.
1: It's quite amazing how much shady shit happens in the music industry. (laughs) Isn't it? Yeah, that's wild. It hasn't stopped either.
0: It has not. Well, anyway, from Baltimore to Frankfurt... (laughs) Now that's a German accent Around this time 1987, German record producer Frank Farian frequented a club in Frankfurt, Germany that was known for playing popular American music Sounds that ranged from underground to the mainstream could be heard there Farian was also known for pressing his own records and having DJs play them for crowds while he took notes before going back to his one of four studios to tweak a song even further it was at this nightclub where Farian heard new Marx's girl, you know it's true. And Farian knew that he had just heard his new Al Capone. Now he just needed a new Bony M.
1: What a fucking wacky business model, but hey, if it works.
0: <laughs> right? And and it would work, and Farian, Farian went to work, feverishly reworking and wholesale stealing new Marx's song, and he began conceptualizing what would become Millie Vanilli.
1: So creepy.
0: Now, while this was all happening, the hopeful Fabrice Morvan moved from his home of France to his adopted home of Germany. Thab did what all young, beautiful people do once they moved to a new city. He went on auditions, casting calls, he partied. He also met a man Maybe I did write some horniness into this. He also met a man, a man he had previously met at a dance seminar in Los Angeles about a year prior, Rob Pilatus. The two almost instantly hit it off in the way that two beautiful, totally straight, rather similar men who have no latent homosexual desires tend to hit it off.
1: For the listeners at home, this is basically exactly Andrew and i story as well.
0: <laughs> it all started on June 25th, 2005 at CBGB's. Mm. Oh, I know the date. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> anyway, you know, Rob and Fab, they would... They would glare at each other at auditions and casting calls from across the room with a stare that was equal parts jealousy, admiration, and absolute intrigue. Us. (laughs) They partied at the same clubs. Also us. They even dated the same exact women, something they would gleefully recount in interviews.
1: Bruh, I think I'm the one that wrote the horniness (laughs) for this (laughs) this episode.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe. We are Millie Vanilli. Maybe we are. Yeah, just bros being bros. I love it. It's true. Well, the two joined forces in the studio and created a pre Millie Vanilli group together, actually. It was named Empire Bazaar, and they even released a single called Dances. Dansé.
1: Probably my favorite song of theirs. (laughs)
0: Not bad. Not bad. Uh, The group was based out of Munich. Oh, 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 and by the way, when they performed live on German television, they did indeed lip sync to themselves. Just not other singers, as was common and still is.
1: Very much common.
0: Isn't that interesting? How about that? Now, this is where things start to get hazy and where the cruxes of individual arguments lie. What is certain is Farian sees Rob and Fab out partying and being beautiful, enjoying German nightlife. Farian then invites Robin Fab over to his Frankfurt studio. and this this is where certainty ends. Farian and his team maintain they not only played Rob and Fab, girl, you know it's true, but that they heard Robin Fab sing in 1988 and did not approve. In a November 17th, 1990, Washington Post article, Farian states that in 1988, quote, these two guys came into the studio, they recorded, but they didn't have enough quality. That is when Farian says he realized it was time to dust off the old vocalist lip-sync switcheroo strategy.
1: Perfectly logical thing to do (sighs) at that point.
0: Yeah, actually, like actually... We're still in the same century where Tin Pan Alley and the, um, I mean, show business was like it's any less contrived now. But anyway, I'm not going to go off into that tangent now. Deal. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. In contrast, over the spate of interviews Fab has recently gone on, he maintains Farian always had deception in mind. Fab recounts going to Farian's studio, hearing the instrument instrumental for Girl You Know It's True, signing a contract in German, a language that he couldn't read. And apparently Rob, who did speak and read German, didn't read it as well. (laughs) Uh, Amazing. And And only then after that, signing a contract in a language he didn't understand, only then after that, he discovered that, allegedly, had discovered that Farrin had already had vocals recorded and never once intended to ever have Rob and Fab sing a single note.
1: It's amazing. What a move. I really got to start delivering contracts with different (laughs)
0: languages. (laughs) That That is a serious move right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, whatever you believe, some things are certain folks. One, Rob and Fab did have examples of their work available. Empire Bizarre Dunces. We talked about it. You can you could have heard them sing before they got invited to that room. It was very easy. Two, Farian knew he didn't want their vocals on his track. Three, Farian knew he needed their faces, bodies, and personalities as the soundless vessels for his current crop of songs.
1: Such an aggressive dude. Mm-hmm. And even crazier, the, that way of uh, developing artist hasn't stopped and even maybe he's gotten more aggressive, yeah, more it, predatory.
0: The amount of artists we don't hear about because they didn't break even enough on the labels investments and that it's, it's mind boggling, dude. Yeah. It's a crazy thing that happens, but speaking of crazy things and how they happen, however, this all went down, however aware Rob and fab were or weren't, let's not make any mistake here. They were young and hungry men who had nothing. They wanted everything and they were absolutely taken advantage of by Frank Farian. According to a recent Vlad TV interview Fab gave to DJ Vlad, Rob and Fab were given paltry advances of around uh, 1,500 Deutsche Mark each, uh, uh, under $1,000 USD, by the way, money they spent. They were told if they didn't want to take part in the project that they had to then pay the money back. They could not, so they were told to work as Milli Vanilli to pay off their debts to Farin.
1: A thousand bucks, that's like a week of drinking it's and nothing. fucking partying at the it's time nothing. for those two, you know? What it's There's
0: no money. It is very much, if that story is the truth, that they were they were suckered into indentured serv- sla- slavery, basically. <laughs> you know? Wow. It's, it, it, listen. It's real. Who knows how aware they were, but they had dreams, they had desires, they were broke motherfuckers, and they were clearly manipulated. None of that is debatable. Agreed. Uh, And I would like to quickly mention, though, there are a lot of inconsistencies regarding their advances and which advances were the ones that acted as the bait that hooked them. But I I don't think there's anything to get too bent out of shape on, but it is something I've noticed, and it is just another indication, another example of how all over the place Millie Vindley's story is and how hard it is to actually pin down the truth. So the various figures given without any actual hard time frame are as follows. Remember, these are all purported advances they were received. $1,500 Deutsche Mark, $4,000, and $20,000 dollars. The 1500 Deutsche Mark figure comes from Thab in recent interviews. The $4,000, that's USD, advance is repeated in only two articles I could find and no sources are provided. And the $20,000 advance is referenced by Rob himself in a November 21st, 1990 LA Times article. And, and keep in mind, these albums they released, I, I, they released one album. There was a Euro version and an American version, maybe that... Uh, accounts for different advances, but none of that is explicitly stated or clearly stated. Uh, And none of these, however, by the way, also have been officially recorded. So there's no hard proof when any of these advances occurred in relation to each other and which advance served as the actual bait. So all we have to go on are the various things multiple people have said that contradict each other and themselves.
1: So basically, we don't know and not that much money, probably.
0: That's the real takeaway, and thank you for highlighting that, Jeremy. (laughs) But beyond that, beyond that, folks, just keep in mind Millie Vanilli's story is all over the place, and there are many different parallel versions of the same truth. It's very strange. There are many inconsistencies in Rob and Fab's various versions of their story, and especially once you get Frank Farian involved. And there's a documentary. The only real primary source, by the way, that I I do want to call this out, because we've... Thoroughly poured over all the available historical data for Millie Vanilli. There's this one documentary on Frank Farian, 100% from his point of view, only in German, and only translated into French. Wow. I'm incapable of watching it. I, I try, I found it. I got copies. I just couldn't understand any of it. And I'm heartbroken. we got to talk about that one day, folks. If you know German, you know French, get at me.
1: We need a translator.
0: Anyway... Regarding inconsistencies and Milli Vanilli, their name's origin is one of those inconsistencies. In old interviews, Rob and Fab outright lied to the press, saying that the name has Turkish origins and means luck or positive energy.
1: Google Translate says Milli Vanilli translates to National Vanilla.
0: <laughs> do you, do you remember what language that is going? In Turkish. What? That is insane. Well, I mean, they lied. They fucking lied. So (laughs) in recent interviews, I love that. Thank you for bringing that up, Jerry. In recent interviews, Fab implies they came up with the name themselves to mimic the English band Scriti Politi, which they were apparently huge fans of, which I think is uh, amazing. And one current, totally baseless and sourceless, unreliable pop matters, article claims that the name is a reference to a defunct German nightclub. To be clear, there's no mention of that anywhere else on the internet. I'm not sure where they get that or, or why, what sources they got from because they don't sort that sort... Ah, they don't cite their sources and I'm freaking out about it!
1: Well, if you if you don't cite your sources then uh, you could take ownership of it, you know?
0: That's a good reason to not cite your sources. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, the most concrete information I can find regarding the name Millie Vanilli is a Billboard.com article titled (laughs) Blame It on the Tape, A Behind-The-Scenes Oral History of the Rise and Fall of Millie Vanilli. Millie Vanilli vocalist Jody Rocco is quoted as saying Millie was the nickname of Ingrid, Frank's girlfriend at the time, uh, who was the office manager, and he used to rhyme it and call her Millie Vanilli. But again, there are multiple stories. Who knows? But if you hear anybody say their name means luck or positive energy in Turkish, that's 100% false. Don't believe that shit.
1: Yeah, it's national vanilla. That's literally what it means in Turkish. We have Google Translate now. I love all these like 80s not in times of the internet where you could just be like, oh, yes. Yeah, it means fucking luck, dude. That's, what it, that's why we called our band this thing. And it's really like, yeah, I don't even know.
0: Kind of makes you wonder how much shit everybody was actually getting away with before like, the internet fully blossomed, you know? Yeah,
1: what is history? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, something that is clear, finally, is as 1988 became 1989, the slope got slippery when the real ride got started. Girl, You Know It's True became a bona fide hit in Europe it piqued the interest of American record labels, and eventually, Millie Vanilli would be signed to Arista in the US. Not surprisingly, as at the time, Arista was owned by Bertelsmann Music Group, a German company. Oh, <laughs> it's time for one of my favorite words, collusion, folks. Uh huh. Bertelsmann Music Group is of course BMG, of Sony BMG, which is now just Sony Music, just an FYI, it's a major. Thank you for sparing us my usual tirade, yes. Uh, anyway, the album Girl You Know It's True was released in America on March 7th, 1989. This was the moment that set off the rest of their careers. Actual Millie Vanilli rapper Charles Shaw is quoted telling billboard.com when the Shikaha in Germany, he, foreign, rushed them out and sent them to America. And I said in a TV interview, I'll never forget it. I give them two years and believe me, it's gonna hit the papers. Once they hit America, I knew it wasn't going to last.
1: I always wondered why Farian couldn't see that himself, like, at all, either. I get that he was just looking ego. for potentials here. Yeah, ego, I guess. But, you know, like I said before, did, he had to have so, someone in his life that's like, yo, this is not a good plan.
0: I'm, I'm sure that. I stand by ego, and I think also on some level he genuinely doesn't, since didn't see how it's a problem. Right. You know, who gives a fuck?
1: Sure, not him. Right, definitely not him. Definitely not him.
0: But it, and and Millie Vanilli's success definitely didn't last, by the way. But before that, they did blow up. But to say the song and the group blew up is kind of an absurd and severe understatement. At the time of working on this episode, Girl, You Know It's True, the song has sold over 40 million copies. Girl, you know, it's the, true. The album has allegedly sold over 14 million copies. These are Michael Jackson numbers.
1: How many times certified <laughs> platinum, though?
0: Right? That is the question. And we will touch on that later, folks, when we get to the commercial impact of the song and the album. Charts? Charts. Threads. <laughs> Uh, Cracks. And these Michael Jackson numbers. Collusion. (laughs) (laughs) These Michael Jackson numbers ended up inciting vocalist Charles Shaw, who went to Newsday in November 1989 to reveal that he was the actual rapper and one of the singers on Millie Vanilli's Girl You Know It's True. <laughs> he was swiftly paid $150,000 by Frank Farian, and he just as swiftly retracted his statement. And as far as I can tell, the original article has not been digitized.
1: He probably wishes he went for those royalties and songwriting credits.
0: Well, Charles Shaw wouldn't have gotten songwriting credits. He wasn't part of New Marks. Right, right, right. But yeah, who knows, man? Who knows what he could have gotten if another deal had been struck? I don't know. Anyway, that would not be the end of Millie Vanilli's Troubles. Far from it, actually. <laughs> that's why you tune into these shows, right, folks? Far from it. Eventually, Millie Vanilli's success and love affair with fans would be put to a very tough test.
1: They would be put in a loop, some may say. Mm. Thrown for mm. a loop.
0: Others may say that, too, Yeah. yeah so I, both would be true.
1: Both would be true. Mm-hmm.
0: July 21st, 1989. Bristol, Connecticut. It's the club MTV tour. Millie Vanilli takes the stage. They perform Girl You Know It's True. And just as the song hit the chorus, the shit hit the fan. Their pre-recorded lip sync track began to skip, repeating the hypnotic mantra of Girl You Know It's Girl, Girl you, you Know, know it. It's Girl You, you know. know It's. Rob was mortified and ran off stage. He only returned after being consoled by the legendary downtown Julie Brown.
1: die It stopped, girl, you know, it's girl, you know, it's girl, 80,000 people, girl, you know, it's girl, you know. you know, I couldn't repeat it 15 times, girl, you know, it got obvious, so I stopped, I panicked, I ran off stage, Julie Brown, who used to work for MTV, ran after me, I didn't want to go back to stage, I had enough, 80,000 people waiting, I said, I have enough, I quit. So just a little more about this, even though it gets talked to death. Uh, Paula Abdul, Tone Loc, and a few other artists were on that tour, and every, every staff and people that were running that tour said basically everyone right. was using lip syncing right. during that tour. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't just them.
0: Isn't that insane?
1: Just theirs broke.
0: But that that's why communication is important. And that's what happens, I guess, when guilty minds... Things fuck up for people with guilty minds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, surprisingly, this was not the end of Millie Vanilli. As Jerry just just told us, basically, uh, they were being clowned harder by the backstage crew than the audience. Yeah. The audience didn't even realize or seem to understand or mind what exactly was going on. They were more confused by Rob running off stage because again, as Jerry told us, the fact of the matter is this audience had been watching a show of nearly a hundred percent lip synced performances <laughs> as it was and still is very common, especially with pop acts that use intense and intricate dance routines.
1: Yeah, the gear guys knew for sure. <laughs> Everyone that was setting that show up was like, this is a tape machine.
0: Very funny accident for Millie Vanilli. Very, very uh, prescient one in ways. It's almost surprising that that wouldn't be the end of their career, but it definitely wasn't a good omen. No. The real end came from a strange combination of unfortunate interviews, comedy, and awards. On January 22nd, 1990, the 17th Annual American Music Awards was held at the Shrine Auditorium. Millie Vanilli would win the most awards that night, totaling at three. Milli Vanilli went home with the AMAs for Favorite Pop Rock Song for Girl You Know It's True, Favorite Pop Rock New Artist, and Favorite Soul R&B New Artist.
1: Which would normally really propel your career. Absolutely. That that could jump jump you off for real.
0: Yeah, and that uh, was the first stop on the awards circuit. Just a month later, on February 21st, 1990, the 32nd annual Grammy Awards (laughs) <laughs> was also held at the Shrine Auditorium. Millie Vanilli went on to win the Grammy for Best New Artist. And not only that, they performed, and potentially are the first and only act to ever be explicitly granted the right to lip-sync during their performance at the Grammys. You see, while lip-syncing was and is common, it was strictly forbidden at the Grammys. That limitation, however was knowingly and purposefully waived for Millie Vanilli. We don't know how or why, but it does point toward collusion.
1: There was certainly somebody chained in hands.
0: Absolutely. My theory? Clive Davis, on behalf of Arista Records, did what he had to do to clear this, because who else could? His- Junior level assistant or something. I, you know, I I certainly do not believe the BS that that Davis and Arista didn't know Rob and Fab were lip syncing. Yeah, of course.
1: They had to know. They were involved with the production, you know? Like they Absolutely. knew they weren't singing on the album. Like how how did he not know?
0: That's ridiculous. I mean, you know, they made their claims and stated why, but I just don't believe any of it. But anyway. This, is, this, my, this belief is supported by a fellow named Todd Headley, by the way. Headley represented Millie Vanilli during their August 1989 to August 1990 career height. Headley worked for Gallon Mori Associates, headed up by the infamous Sandy Gallon. the duo's at the time on paper manager. Headley is quoted in a January 20th, 1992 LA Times piece as saying, Everybody who worked closely with Robin Fab at Ariston knew what was going on. That's why they always tried so desperately to insulate the guys from the press. Sandy Gallen and Clive Davis did not even want Robin Fab to appear on the Grammy broadcast.
1: Yeah, they knew what the fuck was up, for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: In this same article, Farin would assert that no top officials had any knowledge of lip-syncing. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. On March 5th, 1990, Time magazine published their infamous interview with Millie Vanilli. Rob Pilatus is quoted as saying... <laughs> Musically, we are more talented than Bob Dylan. Musically, we are more talented than Paul McCartney. Mick Jagger? His lines are not clear. He don't know how he should produce a sound. I'm the new modern rock and roll. I'm the new Elvis. And like he didn't even produce his
1: music, right? That's so ridiculous. You could really just be lying in Time Magazine back in the day. Just be like, yo, I'm fucking Elvis.
0: You don't need to make statements like that. It, it, it is kind of wild. And actually ignoring the fact that Elvis could sing, though, it is kind of an apt comparison. Both Elvis and Millie Vanilli were artificially selected individuals groomed by a producer with a vision and knack for stealing songs. Stealing songs from black people.
1: Right, but you also like can't ignore the fact that Elvis could sing.
0: Yes, exactly. and that also Fab and, and Rob are black themselves, but again had a white man stealing from other black folks behind him, much like Elvis did with The Colonel. Totally. Fun music lessons. Isn't this great? That's (laughs) what we're here for. What this show is about. It is. No, such a rich history. Fab asserts Rob was misunderstood and misquoted here, though I'm not sure that's the case. A March 14th, 1993 New York Times interview casts doubt on Rob and Fab's purported humility. In this interview, they express how they and the revelation of their lip sync hoax are responsible for cleaning up the music industry and putting the focus on actual singing. (laughs) That's not an example of misconstruing your own reality. I mean, anyway, anyway, Rob states, quote, we weren't bad for the music industry. We changed the music industry. <laughs> now bands have to sing live. Now people watch who sings on the record. Now people want to hear the real music and not just plastic bands anymore. So I think we changed the music business to a better, more honest way. Fab, the man who claims Rob is so misunderstood, <laughs> added, quote, That's why everybody is really singing out now. see, Color Me Bad, and Rob piled on with Michael Bolton, <laughs> Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston. Yeah, I- I'm not so sure Rob's statements were mistook for hubris. I think both Rob and Fab have some delusional thinking.
1: Or maybe Farian was just straight up lying to them. And-, and they're behind the music, which I don't know if we'll get into more detail. They really talk about how they didn't have real friends in the long run, you know?
0: Yeah, I, I totally believe that that's true. I mean, I listen, I do think Farian... Was lying, them, lying to them about a lot. I just also think that Rob and Fab did get egos that grew. Totally. And made some out-of-pocket statements. And I, and I question Fab trying to sugarcoat that by saying Rob was just misunderstood. Again, kind of my own personal gripe with Millie Vanilli and this whole thing is just how much backtracking and changing of the story right. gets done in even the smallest of ways... And I can't help but call it out because it's, it's there. And there are all these various different articles and different accounts. It's really, it's kind of brain-breaking shit.
1: Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's really strange. There's a lot of conflict.
0: Yes, anyway, anyway. Whether he was or wasn't misunderstood, you better believe those March 5th, 1990 Time Magazine statements sent seismic ripples throughout Western media and pop culture. This was blasphemy, seemingly Seemingly, an order of magnitude greater than when John Lennon infamously said, We're more popular than Jesus now.
1: Ah, yes, John Lennon, the classiest guy in fucking rock and roll. You
0: really are that guy at the party, ta- uh, ruining everybody's love for John Lennon and Nirvana, aren't you? I'm the guy on you the really podcast. Are that guy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't talk like those at parties.
0: <laughs> I guess I do. The social strategy of, of an individual, ignore the, ignore the incendiary talk at parties, get into it on the podcast. I like it. No, that's good. Yeah. that's good. Shortly thereafter, on an episode of the Arsenio Hall Show, Sinbad made a special appearance. He takes the stage in fake braids and opens by saying in a shitty German accent, much like mine, I want you to know I am bigger than Bill Cosby. I am the Bob Hope of music. Sinbad goes on to give Hall various Millie Vanilli gifts, only to hit him with, I had Millie Vanilli's greatest hits, but wasn't nothing on it. Got him.
1: Gotta laugh at the love and the deep respect for Bill Cosby here. <laughs> <Pierre. laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, retroactively not the, best, not the best respect to have there, right? Yeah. yeah. On April 21st, 1990, In Living Color famously tackled Millie Vanilli with their Do-It-Yourself Millie Vanilli kit. Skit featuring Keenan and Damon Waynes. This whole skit was just riffing on the duo being absolutely stupid airheads and addressing the formulaic nature of pop acts. Fab recounts being at a social gathering, seeing this on TV, and being absolutely mortified in the presence of his friends.
1: Clearly, the dude doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> right like i feel like they could have not fucked up their whole I career mean, if they were able to just laugh about the whole thing
0: they tried they tried actually getting into like chewing gum commercial i it's a whole thing okay and again they felt scared and guilty right you know they it's true realized they were getting exposed and this was actually far from the worst thing that would happen to them
1: you're saying it gets worse
0: it, it only gets worse baby
1: All right, let's get worse.
0: November 1990 will forever be the month that changed everything. The first 13 days of November 1990 were a whirlwind of international travel, disagreements, and ultimatums. On the 14th day of November 1990, push would come to shove. You really
1: are good at painting a picture, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Jerry. In early November 1990, Rob and Fab flew to Germany to meet with Farian to discuss their future and forthcoming Millie Vanilli album, Keep On Running, set to be released in early
1: 1991. (laughs) Yeah, original title being (laughs) Keep On Running from the
0: Truth. (laughs) And on that note, Rob and Fab were completely excluded from the writing, performing, and recording of Keep On Running, perhaps unsurprisingly. But that exclusion was a shock and surprise to Rob and Fab, who maintained to this day that they were expecting their turn to come.
1: Oh, that has to be such a devastating blow to their ego and not, you know, the motivation to keep putting themselves out there for this project. Uh, that's yeah. a bummer.
0: It is, it is. But I think they actually had some energy in them still because dismayed, dissatisfied, and disgruntled, Rob and Fab refused to take part in this project unless they were allowed to sing. Right. They weren't allowed to sing. Mm. So Rob and Fab flew back to America where they kicked their exit plan into high gear.
1: Yeah, can't blame them for that.
0: Absolutely not. Rob and Fab secured new management and were hoping to set up a new tour when the bottom fell out. On November 14th, 1990, Frank Farian woke up and chose hate. The man said, fuck it. On that day, Farian admitted at a press conference that Milli Vanilli was a ruse and that Rob and Fab lip synced live. And not only that, but that they never once sang or rapped a single note on any Milli Vanilli recording.
1: Wow. That's also basically coming out and saying, hey, I've been lying to you this whole time. Like, do you think really people would continue to support them after that? Like, it's a very interesting psychology. Full kamikaze move.
0: Very interesting psychology. Well, Arsenio Hall definitely had a monologue about this one. Woo, woo, woo. Of course, big money Clive Davis did what executives do. He denied all knowledge of anything remotely incriminating. He had no idea Robin Fab didn't sing. He signed Millie Vanilli as a project, produced by Frank Farian's team, and trusted everything with Square.
1: Bullshit. Exactly.
0: And Farian, he didn't see what the commotion was all about.
1: Of course he didn't, A fucking creep. <laughs> in November 17,
0: in November 1990, Washington Post piece, Farian Riley and pointedly asserts and asks, it was fantastic new music. People were happy. So what's the problem? When asked why he wouldn't let them sing, he said, mm, that was a question of economics. They sing like many others they don't have enough tone and quality in their voices. So my answer was no. <laughs> this
1: guy's clearly not even like a fan of music. <laughs> like, well, he's so
0: warped. He had a very sociopathic, like clinical, cunning, cold. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was, oh, I want to see a documentary. He's a wacky weird dude, man. If somebody knows German or French, please. Talk to me. Anyway, on November 19th, 1990, the Washington Post ran a piece announcing that Robin Fab wanted to return their Grammy. They ideally, this is something that actually gets left out in a lot of reporting. They ideally wanted the Grammys to be given to the vocalists who actually recorded on the album, Johnny Davis, Brad Howell, and Charles Shaw. Well, <laughs> that sure was a nice idea.
1: Admirable, in the least.
0: Yeah. No other artists had ever been forced to return their Grammy in the award shows. At the time, 33 year history. But on November 20th, 1990, the New York Times reported that Millie Vanilli had been stripped of their Grammy award. And it had to have not even
1: happened since. I can't even think of any other time.
0: Nah, nah. And I just love, though, that... <laughs> in Case that didn't land for folks. Just want to make it clear that one day after Washington Post runs an article, of Robin Fab saying they want to give the Grammy back. The next day, the Grammys are like, "Give us the Grammy back."
1: That's crazy.
0: Fucking hilarious. So that day, November twentieth, nineteen ninety. That day, Robin Fab held a ramshackle press conference at Ocean Way Recording Studios to officially and publicly. Give their Grammys back! Outside, people destroyed Millie Vanilli merch and even used a steamroller. <laughs> Wait, what? Fucking steamroller. Where?
1: Where did they get a steamroller? What?
0: I wish I could tell you. I wish I could tell you that. Well, the
1: Home Depot. I don't know. Where do you Where do you get steamrollers from? Look well, seriously. I mean, it's not a small piece of equipment. Like, what Milli Vanilli fan? <laughs> well, rather. It
0: w- it small steamroller but yeah it's that's a bigger Still, it's bigger than a car what an average kind of car
1: ex-millie vanilli fan in nineteen ninety just like casually owns a steamroller. Yeah. There's not much cross section there of like people who own steamrollers and like that genre.
0: I was around then and just 1990s America was still just like, that's a a creepy weird, it's still like the wild west compared to where we are now. It's just a
1: weird, strange,
0: weird, creepy, lawless land. People had steamrollers. I don't know. I don't know either. (laughs) There was a man in Harlem who had a tiger in his apartment among other animals. That's true. Completely different and unrelated, but I'm just saying shit was crazy back in the day, folks. Shit was. Well, this event, by the way, outside of the Ocean Way recording studios, when all these Milli Vanilli records were destroyed by things like a steamroller, all of that was kinda not unlike the time a group of conservative, puritanical, dumbass teens, manipulated by a stupid radio host, destroyed all their fucking favorite Beatles merch after John Lennon's Jesus comments. Kind of funny parallels here, but yeah. while Millie Vanilli's physical legacy was destroyed outside, inside, at the press conference, Rob and Fab faced a brutal press inquisition. <laughs> right up,
1: right up, right up. phone calls enormous rumors that you don't sing on the record. You have to lip sync in front of a half billion people. Right. If you don't lip sync right, it's like oil on a fire. So we were like, we were like, we, we freaked out. Who
0: told you this? The record company and the producer. You're working on a voice coach. You've got a voice coach. On December 5th, 1990, the New York Times reported that Millie Vanilli's Grammy would simply be stripped and never given to anybody, not the original singers and not a runner up no one would be 1989's best new artist. This was unheard of and unprecedented. The Grammys are allegedly kept locked away in a safe to this very day. And as of now, with 63 illustrious years of Grammy awards behind us, this is still the only time this has ever happened.
1: They should totally be put on display somewhere, like Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or somewhere. It's a
0: Actually, crazy yes.
1: piece of history right there. Actually, yes. That should not be in a safe.
0: You're, to- you're-, you're totally fucking right, dude. I put agree. put that with shit you.
1: in a hard rock cafe or something.
0: Well, anyway, folks, this this is when the sharks began to swarm. Class action lawsuits ensued. Even ones filed against Rob and Fab themselves. A January fifteenth, nineteen 1992, LA Times article reports, quote, Consumers filed more than two dozen class action fraud lawsuits against Pilatus and Morvan and their record company in 1990. 26, to be exact, by the way, according to a September 13th, 1991 Entertainment Weekly article.
1: Wait, consumers? Like people who bought their music were suing them? <laughs> it's fucked
0: up, right? Fucked up. <laughs> Insane. <laughs> I've
1: got a few lawsuits <laughs> that I need to start. I'll serve the papers in German.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's how you get things ironclad. Mm -hmm. Oh, and these lawsuits, to be perfectly honest, were absurd. And the sort of litigious abuse we see when blood is in the water. Claims were made along the lines of children's homes, hopes and dreams were being destroyed by this fraud. (laughs) Oh my God. And that, that parents were not only bilked out of money, but that their children had their trust abused, their Innocence taken.
1: Oh, no. Yeah, right.
0: This was not only a financial issue. Children had their hearts broken, folks. No. (laughs) Mind you, a June 23rd, 1990 LA Times piece cites CDs at the time range anywhere from $6.99 to $14.99. Imagine suing over at most $14.99. No damage of any kind done to anyone. Just imagine that.
1: We should start suing over, like, disappointing last seasons of yeah. TV shows. So, yo, that, that was my time <laughs> over years.
0: And isn't time the most valuable asset?
1: That's what I'm saying. Better than fourteen
0: I'd rather have an hour. Isn't time real wealth? Mm, how about that? Interesting stuff here. Fascinating stuff, folks. Well, Arista had an amazingly fucky solution to these lawsuits. Cash rebates of three dollars per bought CD, two dollars per tape or LP, and one dollar <laughs> one dollar oh, per man. single were given to customers. And they sold a lot of singles though, actually, so that could I mean forty million. Well, that's by now. Anyway, additionally, anybody who attended a Millie Vanilli concert and had proof. they would get 5% of the ticket price back.
1: Always save your ticket stubs.
0: Always save your ticket stubs. Oh, yes, and Arista, the virtuous folks they are, they would donate a total, a a full lump sum total of $250,000 to the T.J. Martell Foundation for Leukemia Research, the American Foundation for AIDS Research, and the Rainforest Action Network. Anybody who bought t anybody who bought quote T-shirts and other Milli Vanilli merch would be added to the list of quote contributors to this donation Aristo was making.
1: All those kids who got their dreams crushed were clearly going to be okay after that two dollar
0: settlement. Yeah, right. Right. Go buy some gum and coffee. Really. Thanks, Aristo. So good. But those clash a- class actions against Millie Vanilli and Aristo weren't the only lawsuits to come from this.
1: They have to be the most sued musical act.
0: It's got to be up there. Right around this time in 1990, singer Martha Wash, perhaps most famous for her time in The Weather Girls, was experiencing her own multiple lip-syncing fiascos. Only her voice was the one being used and lip-synced to famous acts like... <laughs> Italian house group Black Box and dance pop house group CNC Music Factory used Walsh's vocals and had them lip-synced to by other people in videos and performances. Walsh's court victory not only compensated her, but led to the creation of federal legislation that made actual and honest vocal credit mandatory for all albums and music videos.
1: See, that's a logical... And a way better solution than just throwing around $2 (laughs) bills to a court case. (laughs) It's just like...
0: No, this is meaningful. This is real. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Something came of this.
0: Yeah, something came of this. And this event isn't... I mean, it is very directly connected to the Milli Vanilli fiasco and all of that, because this demonstrated that this was a viable thing to to litigate over. (laughs) And in this way, it had a positive impact. Martha Wash's court case and, and that success there is, is, is truly a f- phenomenal and good thing.
1: Absolutely.
0: But before any of that, on November 27th, 1990, just seven days after the Ocean Way recording studio press conference, when the duo gave their Grammys back, Rob Pilatus would be arrested for sexual battery against a 25-year-old woman.
1: Oh, shit. That's a turn.
0: As tend to happens on this show, right? Pilatus yeah. was also 25 at the time. Pilatus was freed on $10,485 bail. The DA did not press charges. Insufficient evidence was cited as the reason why.
1: Oh, goodness. um, Yeah, that's bad. That's so Very bad.
0: easy to get away with a lot of stuff before a certain period in history went once technology really caught up, you know? That's
1: so crazy.
0: So this would unfortunately be an Omen of Things to Come with Rob Pilatus. But once again, let's snap back to where we were. 1991 was a year of failure for everyone involved.
1: Well, except for those kids who got all their $2 bills.
0: <laughs> <laughs> things did work out for them, didn't it?
1: Success.
0: <laughs> the <would-be>
1: Life-changing. <laughs> opportunity.
0: <laughs> the would-be follow-up to Girl you know, the Girl You Know It's True album, Keep On Running, was renamed the moment of truth and released by a sort of new group called <laughs> the real Milli Vanilli in Europe on May 13th, 1991, the real Milli Vanilli comprised original, actual Milli Vanilli singers, Brad Howell and John Davis and new additions, Gina Mohammed and Ray Horton.
1: This is a pretty funny new theme. I'm starting to see here with, with these bad bands, they slightly adjust their name somehow and they slightly adjust the group. And now it's like Crazy Town X. <laughs> the real Millie Vanilli, there's bound to be more. This is gonna be a theme, I know it.
0: There's definitely more. There's definitely there's more. Definitely there's more. We're gonna really do an more. episode dedicated to that. Maybe not. But despite the name, they were no more real of a band than Millie Vanilli ever was. We'll discuss this more when we analyze what makes Farian's projects, quote, bad. Further reinforcing how little of a band this project actually was, the real Milli Vanilli and the album, The Moment of Truth, were repackaged as try and be. That's... Just try and be for the States. And following a tradition of bullshit, Try and Be featured two new members who weren't involved in the recording of the Moment of Truth album. The new additions of the group were Tracy Ganser and Kevin Weatherspoon. Some new tracks were recorded for the Try and Be album, but for the record, I I couldn't find any proof of Tracy Ganser recording vocals for Try and Be, so suffice to say the shit tanked.
1: And this shit is confusing. Like, do they really expect all the old Millie Vanilli fans who are soured by the whole situation just to be backtrack and be like, I only like the real Millie Vanilli. This shit slaps. I'm so glad I don't have to bust out my steamroller again.
0: <laughs> it's very confusing and doesn't seem very well thought out and seems quite frankly like flying by the seat of your pants type shit.
1: Yeah, just go, 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 but in a bad way.
0: I, I, by the way, just because I, I realize now I didn't make this clear in the script, folks, try and be... The word try, and then just the letters N-B. Try N B. Fun stuff. How about that? Anyway, meanwhile, sometime in 1991, Rob and Fab began work on a new album to be named Rob and Fab. Which is a very reasonable project name. <laughs> yes, yeah. Very on the nose. Kind of like Bad Band Great Song. <laughs> You see, after news of Robin Fab's split from Farian and Arista, a fellow named Robert Foreman, who is president of Taj Records, a small Nevada based label, called up Robin Fab to express his support. This quote support would manifest as Taj Records signing Robin Fab to release their eponymous record.
1: That's tremendously kind of the guy. (laughs)
0: It does bizarrely have a strange sort of charitable feel to it. I don't know (laughs) (laughs) why. The recording of this album would prove to be very difficult, however.
1: That's why. (laughs) (laughs) How would it have not been?
0: Right, right. So, though Pilatus had overcome the sexual battery charges, he was falling into a pattern of drug use and rampant partying. Beyond that, the duo would be tasked with spending hours upon hours a day working with singing and dialect coaches, doing the work they've never done before to actually become competent vocalists.
1: Strange no one ever told them to do that sooner.
0: Yeah, well, Fab Morvan not only took to it more naturally than Rob did, but Fab was also willing to work harder than Rob. So things were not going well for Rob. And, wait, did I say Rab again? No.
1: Okay. uh,
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And on Saturday, November 30th, 1991, Rob Pilatus couldn't take it anymore. A December 1st, 1991 LA Times article details Pilatus' despondency and attempted suicide. Between 4.55 a.m. and around 5.15 a.m. on November 30th, 1991, Rob Pilatus slashed his wrist attempted to OD on prescription pills and then dangled from the balcony of his ninth floor hotel room. Pilatus had called the LA Times to warn them. He had written a suicide note. He wanted to guarantee that it would be found.
1: Ugh, so fucked up.
0: Yeah. Oh, And for the dark tourists out there with a morbid curiosity, Pilatus was staying at the Mondrain Hotel on the Sunset Strip. I do, not, I do not know the room number. You can figure that out for yourself. This was a loud cry for help.
1: Yeah, I, to say the least. I mean,
0: A month later, in a January 15th, 1992 L.A. Times piece, Pallotta said, quote, I was shaking and I was crying and I could feel my arms getting weaker and weaker and I wanted to die, but I was too scared to let go. So I just hung there waiting for the medication to kick in, hoping that at some point the drugs would just, Caused me to drop.
1: Wow, that is so scary.
0: So fucking dark! So Pilates spent 1991 in a Tucson drug rehabilitation center before returning to Reno, Nevada in January 1990 to once again pick up work on recording the Robin Fab album. But things were about to hit another roadblock. Taj was a strapped-for-cash label with no track record of success and no funding. Though Robert Foreman would make claims of investing around $500,000 into the project during a January 15, 1992 L.A. Times article, a March 14, 1993 New York Times piece stated that Taj Records, quote, threw $50,000 at the duo. The piece goes on to say, that Times piece goes on to say that Taj sent, duo, sent the duo to a, quote, cut-rate Reno studio. And that Taj only had enough money for a day or two of recording at the time. At a time,
1: such a clusterfuck. So Absolutely. many things went wrong for these guys, and so many more things went wrong around them just to keep them down. It's like such a fucking tragic tale.
0: It really is. And in early 1992, Taj Records filed for bankruptcy. Eventually, California-based Joss Entertainment bought Taj Records, and relocated recording to Oakland, California so the project could get finished. But that would prove to essentially fail as well.
1: Yeah, surprise, surprise.
0: <laughs> but before that, Rob and Fab had their chance at redemption on an episode of their good friends, The Arsenio Hall Show, an episode that was taped on Monday, October 26, 1992. On all accounts, the, the performance was good. Ed- you actually find a very garbled, JPEG-to-hell, like, very shitty, potato-quality video on YouTube. And it is cool. It's kind of a high performance, I so fuck with it. But I like, I like, I like this. their lead single, We Can Get It On, from the album Rob and Fab, but anyway. None of that would matter. <laughs> none of that would matter. The good performance on Arsenio Hall, none of that would matter, because Joss Entertainment, and therefore Taj Records, didn't have the money to get the single, We Can Get It On, into record stores. So, no promotion and no distribution for their lead single. That means there was no hype and not even any awareness leading to their Robin Fab album, which had no slated date for release anyway. <laughs> Eventually, in 1993, the album Robin Fab with single We Can Get It On was released. The album went on to sell roughly 2,000 copies. Exactly how many copies were printed and distributed? is unknown, but the story that's making the rounds is literally only 2000 copies were made implying <laughs> that a hundred percent of what was made sold, which I don't know if I buy that, but I, either way, either way, Taj records definitely failed Rob and fab. There's
1: zero copies of that album available on Discogs. That's at the moment, amazing. Which, you know, doesn't like really what? mean right. anything, right. but what does that mean? You know, there are they are not available. But it also seems like you know the label was super strapped for cash at the time. Clearly, maybe they could literally only press two thousand copies, and then they hoped like that two that you know. Then the next pressing would have been twenty two hundred copies. Like,
0: and maybe uh, then all two thousand copies actually sold because they allegedly yeah. sold two thousand copies. So totally, that's fucking just crazy. But yes, totally plausible, totally probable. A planned and hoped for tour. Never happened. No other singles were released. This is when things go dark. There isn't much coverage of the years between 1993 and 1998. What we do know is during this time, Thab reinvented himself as a stripped-down troubadour. There are several articles detailing his performances at open mics, wearing loose-fitting clothing, and playing an acoustic guitar, which all the articles point that out just because... Again, I'm just so surprised I didn't write more horniness into the script. Sex appeal, tight clothing, body-revealing clothing was such a hallmark of Millie Vanilli. To see Fab in this free-flowing clothing just playing an acoustic guitar must have been actually quite striking for the people who were familiar with him. Well, anyway, Fab was always the calmer and more centered of the two. It's It's clear that after all the bullshit that Fab wanted to go on Uh, an authentic and kind of quiet journey of self-discovery. In ways, Fab was embarking on a sort of hero's journey, actually. And he would come out whole and stronger than ever. Wasn't that just Fab for Fab? (laughs) (laughs) Rob, Rob himself, on the other hand, (laughs) dove further into drugs and street crimes. A February 19th, 1996 article of Jet Magazine reported that Pilatus was arrested for making, quote, terrorist threats. Pilatus was found trying to break into someone's car, which led to him running away to a neighboring apartment. There, he tried to force his way in until the resident opened the door, confused, and fell into a pushing and shoving match with Pilatus. At this moment, Pilatus exclaimed, I'll kill everyone here! (laughs) As he pushed his way into the stranger's apartment, only to be promptly struck in the head with a baseball bat.
1: Maybe that's, uh, maybe he's the guy that was trying to s- steal West Scantland's.
0: <laughs> maybe he's the guy trying to steal so West Scantland's Wes, yeah. car. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Well, this crime would be boiled down by Fab in his Vlad TV interview to Rob trying to keep warm on a cold night by sleeping in a stranger's car. Mm. Hmm. in this interview fab would also go on to cast doubt over the other recorded crimes and, and, and charges against rob uh, another example of some latter-day self-preservation tinged revisionist history which i get i, I get it but just again this, this, this sort of retconning this is what makes pinning the truth down so damn hard but For these, quote, terrorist threats and the home invasion, (laughs) Rob's bail was set at $150,000. Jet reports that, quote, someone posted bail. That someone? Infamous German record producer, Frank Farian.
1: I can't believe he's coming up again so soon, but that's also just a fraction so far, of the bail money spent on West Skitchy Scanlon from our last episode.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's like millions of dollars, like on his tab. Oh yeah, it's insane. millions. Really insane. Farin, Rob, and Fab had been in contact. They were in talks. Talks of a Millie Vanilli comeback. That's right, a Millie Vanilli album and tour with Rob and Fab actually on vocals. It would be called "Back" and an attack. Before work could get started, Rob was sentenced to three months in jail and six months at a drug treatment facility in California as punishment for his 1996 arrest for making, quote, terrorist threats. Oh shit, poor guy. And it only gets worse. But the the album was allegedly being made, but Rob kept doing Rob things. According to an April 6th, 1998 Rolling Stone piece, In November of 1997, a Van Nuys, California Municipal Court judge issued an arrest warrant for Pilatus after he failed to show for a probation violation hearing. He had been charged with grand theft, felony forgery, and four 1996 misdemeanor convictions. I think we're seeing some threads here. I think we are too. Show me them threads. But somehow, the album was made, or at least mostly made, but the album would never see the light of day. That Rolling Stone piece that I actually just quoted is actually an obituary. On April 3rd, 1998, allegedly one day before the Back and in Attack tour, Rob Pilatus was found dead in his hotel room of an apparent accidental overdose due to a combination of alcohol and prescription drugs. Oh, man. Yeah. Millie Vanilli was... Now undeniably and indisputably done. Frank Farian went on to other projects, producing hits for groups like No Mercy and Labouche. the latter of which had international hits, with Farian produced songs Sweet Dreams and Be My Lover.
1: Two pretty fucking awesome songs. Awesome
0: songs. And Fab released his own studio album, <laughs> Love Revolution, in 2003.
1: Not really any great songs.
0: None at all. He also has experienced a bit of a career renaissance performing with former Millie Vanilli vocalist John Davis as Face Meets Voice, a Millie Vanilli experience. <laughs> they're they're kind of great. They're fucking awesome, uh, actually. And it's kind of surreal and a fitting coda to the Millie Vanilli saga.
1: Another simple, straightforward repurposing of the name. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, my God, dude. Oh, my a God. A vanilli
1: experience. It's like, come on, guys.
0: It really is. Now, it's heartbreaking and tragic, yes, that, that Rob Pilatus is gone. But it's also poetic and, and truly just that Fab Morvan, the, the sweetest and purest character in this whole story, actually, now gets to get his win back. He's avenged a loss. He's achieved redemption.
1: He achieved his hero status for his story. It's really, it really is pretty beautiful.
0: His career has truly actually come full circle. He's now singing as one half of Millie Vanilli, legitimately, yeah, not with his old partner, but he's doing it with one of the original, actual Millie Vanilli vocalists. And he sounds very good. He looks great and yeah. <laughs> when they perform Girl, You Know It's True, Fab does indeed still take the wrapped verses, as those verses were his lip-synced parts. Fucking hero. Kind of amazing. And for the record, when Face Meets Voice, a Milli Vanilli Experience, performs their medleys live on television, certain television performances, they do indeed lip-sync to themselves, as was and is common
1: Yeah, come on. Even the Red Hot Chili Peppers do it. They do it for every Super Bowl halftime performers. Actually,
0: have to because Anthony Kiedis is a a, a fine Uh, rapper, but he's a a bad singer anyway. He's a bad singer.
1: Either way, it's not to do with that. It's a logistical thing. It's just logistics of of making a television production. And unfortunately for Billy Vanilli, it was also because they lacked talent, but we get that by now.
0: We Can Get It On off of Robin and Fab is an awesome fucking song. And Arsenio, Arsenio Hall said himself, if Michael Jackson had released that song, everybody would be freaking out about it. Well, folks, it's kind of rare that we get to have an ending like this to a story like this. And of course, this story isn't necessarily over. But as of now, anyway, there's no more story left to tell. So we'll just see what happens. Oh, by the way, about Petaway Jr., Kai Adiemo, and Kevin K.G. Lyles and the rest of Newmark's, They got taken care of. They sued. And they got taken care of. And Lyles in particular, he would go on to become president of Def Jam, executive VP of Island Def Jam and executive vice president of Warner Music Group. The Warner Music Group family of labels. <laughs> the yeah. man, yo, for real though, the man not only catches checks, he signs them, but... They all deserve their own story to be told by someone who isn't telling stories about bad bands. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So now that that story's done, let's talk about the song's creation.
1: Hell yeah, let's do it.
0: As discussed in the band's story, Girl You Know It's True was 100% written by Bill Petaway Jr., New Marks, and Kai Adeyemo of funk band Starpoint. Nobody else has actual writing credits on this song. The music was written by Petaway Jr. in his Annapolis home. The song was discovered by Newmarks and inspired vocalist Kevin KG Lyles to pen a love song for a girl. Sweetheart. Sweetheart. The music was worked on as a team by Newmarks and Petaway Jr., as Lyles wrote the lyrics to the verses and the choruses. However, as far as a hook goes, I'm in love girl was about as far as Kevin KG Lyles got. This this is where Kai Adiemo of funk band Starpoint comes into the picture. Adiemo, working late nights with Pettaway Jr., created the hook, "Girl, you know it's true," which also became the crux of the chorus and the title of the song.
1: And one of the most legendary lines Actually. of music ever sang,
0: or well,
1: not <laughs> sang, rather.
0: <laughs> right, and that's it. Frank Farian just full on stole revamped and re-recorded the song. Uh, No new parts, more significant parts were written by Farian. No lyrics had been changed other than shortening the verses and the the arrangement is largely identical, just some more lush, layered and dynamic bits than than the original. All great things, but it's a cover. They didn't alter the song in any meaningful way. This was a stolen cover. But listen, all this what Farian basically did, I think i can break it down in a way that make sense to a lot of people. It's really just, actually this might not make sense to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, it's going to really make sense to some people and not make any sense to the rest.
0: True gamer hour here, folks. It's really just ray tracing off versus ray tracing on. You know what I mean? Farian's Girl You Know It's True is a PS5 remaster of a PS3 classic. It's not new, it's just redone.
1: This is for sure the only podcast where people are talking about Milli Vanilli and PlayStation 3 remasters in the same breath.
0: That is the, that is the power of this podcast. That is the power of this podcast. That is just how much of a, despite how much of a just wanton human I am, just how much of a virgin I am deep down in my soul. <laughs> So, let's get into the critical reaction, commercial, impact, chart, success, and fan response. So, the critical reaction was rather negative. Girl, you know it's true, the song was recognized as the catchy and pretty rad hit that it was. But Girl, you know it's true, the album was universally panned by critics as being lightweight funk and soul R&B inflected dance pop.
1: And for good reason.
0: Yeah, you know, most of it's not very good. There's there are songs. There are a few songs that I enjoy, but it is not good music. Commercial Impact. This song was huge. It still is. There is no way to overstate that really. The song has sold over 40 million copies worldwide. The song, the song itself, just the single, has gone certified platinum in the US alone. And again, we all know it <sighs> something's sold more than it's allegedly certified, but whatever. The album Girl You Know It's True proceeded to sell in excess of 6 million copies in the U.S. within less than a year, and it's absolutely certified six times platinum by the RIAA. And as of now, Fab Morvan and and some sources indicate that the album has actually sold more than 10 million copies. Some sources even saying it's hitting 14 million copies sold in the U.S. alone, allegedly.
1: Alright, that's it. Let's do an official count. You and I, we're going to do all the copies that were ever <laughs> sold. Let's count them. So, if you listening or anyone you know has bought a copy of the album, please DM us a <laughs> Bad Band Great song on Instagram. I'll be starting a spreadsheet. We're going to try and get an official
0: count. This is how, this is how we start the Patreon. Is we're going to be crowdsourcing these. We're, we're crowdfunding these efforts here, folks. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> chart success. Girl, you know it's true. The song peaked at the number two spot on the Billboard Hot 100 and spent 26 weeks on the chart.
1: I don't have it in me today, bud. You're, you're charting alone. That's
0: okay. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I can do it. I'm i surprised it didn't hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. I'm just surprised it didn't get there, but whatever. Peaked at number two. Stayed there for 26 weeks. Kind of crazy. It also peaked at number one on the dance singles chart. It peaked at number 27 on the adult contemporary chart. It reached the number three spot on the hot R&B hip-hop songs chart. Wow, and then hit number two on the Hot Rap Songs chart. Chart. (laughs) You just couldn't help it. And number three on the Dance Club Songs chart. Girl, you know it's true. The album peaked at the number one spot on the Billboard 200 and spent 78 weeks on the
1: chart. I couldn't help. It's it's impossible. It's so hard. Oh, my God.
0: Uh, this is the hardest part of the podcast. Every week. <laughs> Fan response. People ate this shit up. Fans the world over acted like this was a new Michael Jackson record. Basically, as of now, 2021, over 40 million singles sold. Singles. 40 million singles sold. I don't, I, I don't think this needs any extra ex- explanation. So what makes this band bad? Oh, where to begin? Well, as we addressed in the band story, Millie Vanilli isn't even a band or an actual group on any level. Not one release associated with the concept of Millie Vanilli includes the same exact personnel or combination of personnel. Only two out of three key vocalists appear on every Farian produced Millie Vanilli release. These are vocalists Brad Howell and John Davis. And these are the sorts of albums with 20-plus session musicians involved, and it is not the same crew on each track. There is nothing that defines Milli Vanilli, except, perhaps kind of cruelly, for the narrative purposes of the story, Frank Farian. But Farian is a man without an actual sound. He is and works hard to be a mirror. Originality is not a concern of his. Cracking a code and cashing out are his concerns. He simply seeks to reflect what is popular, polish it, and profit from it. Which, I, I mean, that, I, that's just entertainment. I, I, I. Anyway, but <laughs> he got caught, I guess, that's <laughs> the point. <laughs> hey, his music, it sounds like focus-grouped music concocted in a laboratory and it is. that. That's exactly how Frank Farian works. Which
1: is such an eye-opening way to look at creating a band and a musical project for yourself. Obviously, don't go as far as Farian and be right. as fucking weird right. and like, you know, weird basically.
0: Don't fetishize people and be duplicitous. Yeah, yeah.
1: But it certainly like opens up more pages to one's own creativity. If you could go this fucking far, like land somewhere in the middle. It's... Uh,
0: Absolutely. So... Farian's music is iterative. It's also derivative, sure, but it's truly iterative. When you listen to Millie Vanilli's discography, not, not that there's much to explore. <laughs> you're experiencing Frank Farian's process from All or Nothing to the album Girl You Know It's True. You're basically on a journey of refinement in the name of commercial gain. All or Nothing is a kind of a slog to get through. I think that's an understatement. <laughs> It's sequenced poorly uh, and results in a flat and laborious listening experience. There isn't much in this album that sparkles and shakes things up.
1: Even in the context of their time, there was so much good pop music coming out. I can't believe or imagine this album as a whole standing out.
0: No. They had to do something else, so they did do something else. The album, Girl You You Know It's True, kind of sounds like the final version of All or Nothing. That said, it Absolutely sucks. <laughs> Why? Well, because, as is the case with so many of our subjects, the songs, that ain't singles, really ain't singles. Just by the third track in, more than you'll ever know, we've reached full Muzak. It's a, it's a four-minute elevator ride, basically, folks. It, it honestly kind of sounds like Sonic the Hedgehog-level music, and I, I'm not going to be one of those maniacs who tries to tell you that that's a good thing. The, the music in Sonic the Hedgehog, is, is it not good? It's not good music! There's a crazy fandom out there that thinks this. Well, in contrast, Blame It On The Rain is a phenomenal sounding single, but it is ultimately very trite and pithy. It's a Diane Warren song, so I don't know, you know what do you expect? Deep meaning? Or saccharine songs with sentimental and surface level emotions? It's the latter. It's always, it's always the latter with Diane Warren but by the time we get to the 7th track Dreams to Remember, I just <laughs> I, I don't get it, I just don't get it it doesn't make sense to me how anybody bought this that this, was, that this was an actual group with central figures responsible for each song, I don't understand by this time in the album it's just undeniably just, just fucking me in the face that this is essentially a different and quite obviously a different band track to track At the end of the day, this is music that you hear in a dentist's office. It really is. The real Milli Vanilli is peak early 90s. The album is just made up of sounds assembled together and we're being told it's music. This album, once again, doesn't sound like a single cohesive release by an actual group. It's all over the place and frankly varied to a fault. And in terms of quality, These songs sound like those weird kind of vanity songs that people with too much money get written for themselves to sing. You know, like on some Rebecca Black or Tiger King type of shit. You know you know what I
1: mean. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I saw Tiger (laughs) and Tiger saw a man. That
0: one's kind of a banger though, but I mean, you know. That one is a good one. All right, and let's, let's talk about rap, the thing I'm most qualified to talk about. The rapping on this album...
1: That was sarcasm.
0: <laughs> it's presentation, no, it is sarcasm. But I, I, I have enough wherewithal. It was
1: sarcasm. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs>
0: well, the rapping on this album and its presentation is dated, even by nineteen ninety-one standards. Just kind of demonstrating how incredibly out of touch and artificial this all is. Track "Body Slam" is a perfect example. The rapping and primary beat on that track are lifted straight from Newmark's in nineteen eighty-seven. For a track in 1991. Fucking nailed it. Sick. (laughs) In fact, this whole record sounds like 1988 at the latest, which, hey, maybe that's what Farian decided is the Milli Vanilli sound. Doubt it, but maybe. I don't know. This definitely doesn't sound like 1991, though. Actual recording artists had already moved past these sounds, textures, styles, and tropes. On all recordings, the vocalists are excruciatingly unmemorable and decidedly not distinct. There's just no character. There's no defining qualities. There really is no milly Vanilli sound. Every song is a different generic band. No voice stands out, and that's by design.
1: Farian is a real jigsaw type dude. It
0: really fucking is.
1: It really is. It's
0: so scary. And also very Vince mcmahon very wwe in this this way we're about to to talk about right now. Farian doesn't want a total package individual talent because that person can then go hook up with any producer. That person will have a fan base that follows them around. But as long as Farian pieces together his music with talent that can't be seen using faces with no talent... (laughs) Well, then each of those parties, they need Farian more than a total package individual would need.
1: Also such a pre-internet ability.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Now, I unironically believe, as I said earlier, that We Can Get It On by Robin Fab is amazing. I think it's the best Milli Vanilli related song there is. actually can't find it on Spotify, which is just soul-crushing. You definitely can't find New Marx's Girl. You know it's true on Spotify. So, folks, if you you can buy those... Well, you can't, you can't buy New Marx's track. Go listen to it on YouTube. To you should it do on it. YouTube. you should, really should. But back to Robin Fab. Now, does Fab have the best voice?
1: No. It's
0: not. Mm-hmm. But I recognize and remember Fab's voice. He has pop vocals. Oh, I'm getting into dicey territory. But I wrote it. I'm going to stick to it. Is Britney as good as Christina on a technical level as a vocalist? No. You, you tread lightly here, my friend. <laughs> Is Britney bigger than Christina though? Absolutely. So you see what I'm saying? Fab isn't the best vocalist. He's not going to be in an opera anytime soon, but he's a good and fun pop vocalist.
1: And at this point, he has the story of the journey to back him up.
0: Absolutely. It's a very interesting story behind him. Oh, yeah. Hell, you know what? Robin Fab is actually a cohesive record, and it's, it's the most solid listening experience of anything connected to Millie Vanilli, which I realize is not saying much, but, like, it's true. <laughs> it has character. It It sounds like young, hungry guys trying to do something that they believe is cool. And it doesn't sound like an old stodgy German man trying to create something to convince us that we like it. Also, the deep cuts, which is basically the whole album, since we're talking about <laughs> <laughs> they're just treated with so much more love than Farian and Co. ever gave to any non-single Milli Vanilli track. I, you know, I, I, I'm not saying they're great, but there's just so much more raw passion on display with the Robin Fab album. And anybody who thinks that I am fucking fronting I have now listened to Rob Fab front to back, start to finish in excess of nine times. As of the time of my writing this, it will probably be more by the time I record. I can't say that I'm willing to do that with the rest of Millie Vanilli's output, like at all. And now if you folks at home are questioning both my sanity and taste, good! That's literally the whole point of this show, sort of.
1: Yeah, and the other point of this show is to just fuck up my algorithm on Spotify. It's just like, oh, you want to listen to the Crazy Town X, you piece of shit?
0: Uh, well, besides fucking up your algorithm, we want you to question. We want you to scrutinize. That's the takeaway from this whole damn show, folks. Look for the bad in what you love. Do that. And see what's there. And learn... Learn about acceptance. And look for the great in what you hate and see what you can learn from that.
1: And if you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. Love the one you're with. Love the one you're with.
0: (laughs) What makes this song great? Starting with a technical analysis. New Marx's Girl You Know It's True is a rap song that proves rap can be pop. Farian and Millie Vanilli's Girl You Know It's True is a pop song that features rapping. The New Marx song is sparse. It has air and room in it. The beat and Kevin KG Lyle's vocals are the stars of this song. The music is carried by an intricate synth bass that dances throughout the track and hits hard. The synths are cold and icy callback to austere euro dance roots so much club music that was prevalent during this time especially in baltimore club
1: it's really interesting to me how much it captures the sound of fm synthesis and mm. synthesizers years before any of those commercial synths were released it's really like super crazy to think about what he was doing in the studio yeah, yeah it's crazy i can't i don't even know what he was doing
0: now whatever you want to call it this is the true Baltimore sound from the 80s on display. In fact, volume 19, issue 4 of the Journal of Popular Music Studies, a peer-reviewed quarterly publication of the U.S. branch of the International Association of the Study of Popular Music, features a piece on Baltimore Club and names Sean DJ Spence Spencer of New Marks as one of the genre's key progenitors in the New Marks song. A hook is really just that. A hook. The chorus in the New Marks version is just another part of the song, as opposed to being an all-or-nothing massive dopamine dump turn-up, which is what pop music choruses are, <laughs> just in general. However, talk about restraint, New Marks does eventually get there. The last chorus of the song isn't just running the hookback. It's a full-on pop chorus, and in this final chorus, Newmark's predicts and basically shows us what the forthcoming Millie Vanilli version will be. This is to say the final chorus of the song takes a hard as fuck regional rap song to pure pop music status. Masterfully done. Awesome stuff, it really is. The final chorus is packed with soaring Synths, scintillating and sparkling piano melody, choral harmony, backup vocals, and a strong melodic hook delivered by Lyles, absolutely cutting loose. The painterly and purposeful restraint here, kind of mind-breaking. They could have done this on every single chorus. It may have made the song more palatable to a mainstream audience, more accustomed to lush and soft sounds, but from a philosophical point of view, it would have been too much of a good thing, perhaps we would have been robbed of the ecstatic elation of an orgasmic crescendo that is as fleeting as it is satisfying. The Farian and Milli Vanilli version took more than notes from New Marks & Co. They They took the whole damn song. But they also took notes. <laughs> While this version of the song is immediately more full of music and ornamental sounds, for a pop song, it shows a lot of restraint and pulls back quite a bit, especially in the 80s when a lot of things were just always walls of synths and whatever but firstly let's 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 make this clear there are no significant changes here yes the arrangement is different and more traditional big budget pop but the only true differences are as follows verses have been shortened the hook is more prominent and crafted as more of a traditional pop chorus and while neither song is a traditional bridge each song handles the moments of music before the final chorus a bit differently. To be fair, though it's odd, the Farian and Milli Vanilli version actually features a change in this bridge section that doesn't occur in the New Marks version. In that way, we, we do have sort of a more traditional bridge with the, the Farian and Milli Vanilli version. Just like the New Marks version, Farian and Millie Vanilli's rendition starts with the hook. Except here we get it via pre-song dialogue. After that, the beat kicks in, where the New Marks version was a druggy, seductive, mid-tempo club song made for grinding bodies that begin in haunting fashion. The Milli Vanilli version is a considerably faster, up-tempo pop song made to hook you with your candy.
1: I was super curious about the tempo. Difference because I noticed it also just listening to the two. Mm-hmm. But I tapped it out on my like tempo app on my phone. And okay. It's only like three BPM difference.
0: Right. Barely yeah, that's
1: anything. It's amazing how a little tempo shift. It really is. Change everything.
0: <laughs> Slightest change in time changes so much. The icy new wave exorcist tones from the new Mark's version have been replaced with an organic sounding piano, warm synths and lush strings. The chorus melody is introduced here, as it is in the original, where Kevin KG Lyles sounded hard and strong. Millie Vanilli rapper Charles Shaw sounds elastic and exuberant, probably better for a mainstream pop song. Lyles was a tough guy telling a girl he loved her, even sounding like he was kind of blown away by his own emotions on display. In contrast... Shaw sounds like he's filled with an innocent, youthful, and careening energy and an equally fitting, but quite different, performance for a song about the grand revelation of deep love. New Marxist synth bass, the core of each verse, has been replaced, once again, by a more organic sound. And it's tucked back more in the mix, perhaps to tamp down the hard aggression a solid and powerful bass line can create. <laughs> Another important distinction we have two key vocalists in the Milli Vanilli version. Despite how indistinct by design vocals are in Farian's music, this kind of helps to actually really offset the verses and the choruses. This song doesn't really play with shifting dynamics, so something like this helps to further define each part. In New Marx's version, we did have rapped verses and sung choruses, something that would become and still is a staple of the pop rap song, or perhaps more accurately, just... The pop songs, sparseness was the foundation of the Newmark song. Here in the Farian Milli Vanilli version, sparseness is used sparingly. The verses, compared to other pop songs and the choruses, are pretty open and pulled back. It's not quite what Newmark showed us in terms of restraint. But for an 80s pop song in white America, the focus on the beat and rapped vocals undoubtedly had Shane, Tad, Jad, Charlie, and Brad feeling like they were listening to a real street banger. You know, real hip and hop, like that Vanilla Ice guy.
1: Our favorite.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Shit talking aside, what this version of the song does incredibly well is keep momentum and energy up. And at a constant, it uses its arrangement to offset key parts of this momentum And energy is never sacrificed. In this instance, an intricate arrangement on its own does what shifting dynamics typically helps the song achieve. That's kind of cool. Moving on to our personal analysis. So, (laughs) I didn't like this song at first. Or I I should say I, I I didn't understand how this song could be. 40 million plus seller? I, I'm still not entirely sure that I do because there have been and are better songs that have not come anywhere close to reaching these heights, frankly.
1: Well, as tragic as the story is, I think that really adds a ton to the whole picture. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if every single play was, hey, I love this song. You know, I'm sure there was lots of, hey, listen to this song that's, Storied and attached to one of the greatest tragedies of music history. It's funny how that gets and people And is talking. decent. But yeah, it's a, it's a conversation piece, if anything, Clearly, yeah, really.
0: yeah, yeah, Well, the Tharian Milli Vanilli version of the song is a better pop song than New Marx's version. New Marx wrote a great song, and Tharian showed us what a skilled and seasoned pop producer can do with a well-written song. But still... I didn't and really don't understand how this song became as big as it is. 40 million plus units sold?
1: That really is a staggering number. Right? Yeah.
0: But then, folks, I realized this... Me not getting a thing, me not understanding how it sold so much. I realized that was a personal problem. My initial issue was... I was listening to this song with modern ears, frankly. I was waiting for the earworm hook, the massive beat drop, and the soaring larger-than-life chorus. None of those things ever really happened in this song. Sure, there, there's a hook, there's a beat. Well, no, it doesn't really drop. It, it hits hard right after the hook is sort of delivered via pre-song mo- dialogue. And the chorus is definitely big, but but none of those things occur in the way that they all happen in so much, a lot of today's pop music. And frankly, that was fucked up in me. I had hoped that I would have known better. I had hoped that I wasn't conditioned by today's dopamine dump and trigger fingering badly written and overly choreographed pop, but I, I was. And it, prevented me at first from understanding the song's genius, both the original and Farian's big-budget redo. It's good to look at these older
1: songs in the context of other songs released, like, Absolutely. that same month maybe is, you know, a fair way to go. But that same month, Madonna released Like a Prayer. Oh, huge song. Huge song. Huge album.
0: Huge stuff, yeah.
1: De La Soul releases Three Feet High and Rising. Huge album. Right. On a summer Dream Theater, I think it's the first Dream Theater album.
0: <laughs> I mean, fuck like Dream Theater, but yeah.
1: But you know, it's like it's a, it's, it's it's interesting. They're podcasts. all really
0: great players.
1: They're yeah. great,
0: guitar- yeah. great guitars. Yeah, John Petrucci is the right. Writer- Sorry, I'm gonna
1: stop. Yeah, I I hear you, but you know, all those all those artists share that month of release. There really was a lot of great music.
0: There was definitely a lot going on then. There was a lot going on and it it does help you to, I think, hear this song and approach it with the right set of ears because, and I just want to be clear, even though it could have sounded like it, everything I was saying there isn't me necessarily ragging on on modern pop music, but it's me saying that I was definitely conditioned by it and when I listened to this song at first, I didn't hear things I frankly had begun to expect to hear and Pop songs, just because of the time and place we're in. So, once I moved past that, I started to realize some things. Girl, You Know It's True is a well-written song. The fact is, it's a better written song than a lot of current pop hits. It's a more fully written song in ways, from the quality and coherence of the lyrics, to the pure pop melody of the chorus, to the restrained and sophisticated arrangement in both songs. We have a sort of song that you don't really hear anymore. Now, we mostly have songs that are just thick, solid walls of sound. Not the harmonious and truly chordal spectral wall of sound, mind you. Not that that's any better. Not that that's any better. But it's a little different. Now we tend to have more monolithic, thick, I would almost say nuance-less, but very, very vibe-heavy of sound, and perhaps that's the trade-off there, is a little less nuance, we get a little more vibe, and that's cool. Maybe that's what's going on. I don't know. But that's sort of what I'm hearing in modern pop music. And well, of course, melodies that don't have a lot of melody, and that's not even an original thought of mine. That is a, very much a discussion about the place of melody in, in, in modern pop music. That's a very interesting conversation to have and, and see where it's gone. But anyway, if... You think that's a swipe. It's not. It's just an assessment. Nuance and bangers (laughs) aren't things that typically go together. Just look at the word, banger. I don't know if I really need to do a deep dive into how banger doesn't suggest nuance because I really hope I don't. But it doesn't. You don't. Right. So I hope some words still have some meaning to y'all folks. They do.
1: Some of of them at least.
0: (laughs) Good. So, girl, you know it's true. Just to be clear, it's something entirely different than today's modern pop. In ways, anyway. It's a song that will pass you by if you don't stop to listen. That doesn't make it weaker. It just makes it simply a song from another time, a song when there was less going on at once. There was less stimuli to compete with. People listen to music in different ways.
1: And I guess tons and tons of people really gave this song a chance.
0: They did. And and I'm not being a boomer here, but I'm about to be a boomer here. So, you know, I'm just simply pointing out that that most people multitask all the time now. Most people don't sit down and listen to music in the way you would watch a movie or read a book.
1: Yeah, I don't even pay attention to movies anymore. And like oh, after, well, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, after like 140 characters, I'm not even reading, or well, whatever, 280 now, or whatever it is, right?
0: <laughs> well, but I,
1: the- I also bet you listening to this right now isn't just listening to this. <laughs> that's right very true. Now. And that's okay for Driving folks. your car or drawing a picture,
0: editing a picture,
1: editing a picture.
0: But so there you go. So there you go. People don't even give movies or even books. their undivided attention. So that's what music today has to compete with. You not giving it its undivided attention. This song came from a time when that wasn't so much the case. Girl, You Know It's True is a smash hit single from a time when most people kind of just more purposefully sat down and listened to music. You know, record players might have been a centerpiece of a home. Uh, you know, and hey, if that statement triggers you, I'm sorry. Times change. You know, behaviors change. Very, very, very broadly and generally speaking, people at large don't listen to music the way we used to. But none of what I said just now, answers or even addresses how, girl, you know, it's true, could have excited so many individuals.
1: The tremendous story behind it has to be a big part of it. <laughs>
0: It has to be. It Lasty. has to be. And while with Snark, I kind of called out today's music for just being walls of sound. That's not new. How it's done is being new, but that's really always been what mainstream pop is. Big, lush, and loud. Totally. Looking at another Millie Vanilli hit, Blame It on the Rain, we hear a much more traditional pop song. It's a song that's full of sound and it never lets up. In contrast, though, Girl, You Know It's True, as we've discussed a lot in this episode already, is restrained and pulled back as hell. The verses are almost empty compared to the average pop hit. And it's a pop song with fully wrapped verses. Mm, How about that? Uh The average pop fan in the late 80s and early 90s had not really heard anything quite like this. Sure, Blondie's Rapture was a number one hit on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1981, but that song was different. It was a pop song with singing and rap vocals, and it was a, a, a danceable song, sure. But I, I feel like rapture is much closer to New Marx's version of Girl, You Know It's True, both in, in its rawness and its essential just purity of intent. <laughs> but the Millie Vanilli version of Girl, You Know It's True, this was fully formed dance pop with rapping at a time when dance music, rap, and pop were different things. Now, they're essentially one and the same. So, you see, this song kind of predicted modern pop music. That's a tremendous claim.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: That's amazing.
0: Uh, so, I'm going to generalize a bit, but hear me out. Yeah. The sound of modern pop music is mostly rapped verses, mm. dance beats and yeah. a fully sung, very anthemic chorus. Even more simply just rap plus dance plus pop. That's kind of the modern pop sound.
1: Okay, sure. You're certainly generalizing, but I'm with you.
0: I certainly am. But folks, I, I, I challenge you at home to pull up the Billboard Hot 100 right now and play a game with me. I'm recording this just for the accountability's sake uh, with Jerry on September 4th, Saturday, September 4th. I'm not going to go through it right now. It's going to be different when you look at it. But remember what I say. Rap plus singing plus dance beats. This is the sound of pop. But that's not what pop music was. Hell, it wasn't even that in the '90s and the 2000s. I remember reading actually a, a, a Will I Am interview in Rolling Stone in about 2008 or 2009, and he stated that in Europe, dance music was becoming the new pop and the new foundation for pop music. It was the sound of music that mattered to the world, and he rightly predicted that that would be fully infused with American pop music soon. Now, up until very recently, pop dance and rap were pretty distinct genres as fucking billboard charts will show you still to this day despite how clearly seamlessly they can all blend together and they are blended together seamlessly all the time right now girl you know it's true did this in 1989 no 1987 when new wrote it you see New Marks, they were the truth soothsayers. In 1987, Kevin KG Lyles and his crew, along with Petaway Jr. and Kai Emmo, they wrote a pop song from the future, rapped verses, dance beats, and a sung pop chorus.
1: Right, so the song is great for sure.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. You, you think the song is great?
1: I think the song is great. I get it. You've really convinced me on this one.
0: Only took us to the season finale. This is phenomenal. So, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not... But I want to revel in this moment so badly. But we're going to move on. We're going to move on. Let's move on. <laughs> so, not only had people never heard something so sparse before on the charts, really, they were given a song from the future. And they didn't reject it. They fully understood it and embraced it. In 1987, Newmark's wrote a song from... Fucking 2037, man. And we still haven't quite caught up. Despite the fact that modern pop follows the same formula this song laid out, if you put this song and truly listen to it, man, there's nothing really that quite sounds like it. It's not quite fair to say that we haven't caught up to what this song did, but man, this song has something special. It does, I get it. I still don't understand how this song really sold over 40 million copies. It's kind of miraculous. It's a very rare instance of, dare I say, swine understanding the pearl before them. But Girl, You Know It's True was a true, absolute crossover hit at a time when crossing over was a legitimate challenge. There was black music and white music. There was rap and pop and dance music for some freaks in the club.
1: Maybe that's what it was. That overarching appeal that allowed it to sell so many car- copies—like, if anything, that's proof there that it was genre-defying and a genre-bridging song. Because what other genre was pulling? Whatever artists could pull that many people?
0: Hmm. Hmm. Hey, and for those of you at home screaming at their phones or laptops about Run DMC and Aerosmith, that's rap and rock. Something that would become relevant for a bit in the late 90s, but that faded away. Rap plus dance plus pop. This is the formula of music. And that, that formula is not fading away. And it shouldn't. A lot of fun. Girl, You Know It's True is one of the greatest songs ever written, recorded, and released worldwide. Wow. Without question.
1: Wow. (gasps) Wow. You really did it this time, Vanny.
0: I would drop the mic, but it's expensive, so I'm not going to. I'm not uh, going. I'm not going to do that. It's at least to me, microphone. you
1: really, really proved it tonight. Here, I'd give you my microphone. It's cheap.
0: No, <laughs> sure. and
1: I'd have to unplug it. We got a weird mic. So.
0: <laughs> All right. Hey. Wow. Wow. Folks, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us for these eight episodes. Thank you so much for joining us for season one. You've made it to the end of season one. And what a phenomenal and strange and crazy journey it's been. And it's only going to get weirder again. I wish I could tell you how season two is going to start, but I'm just a little torn. This is how I feel. not going to give you any more hints. But anyway, folks... With all that said, remember we come back Tuesday, October 5th. We cannot wait to hang out with you again and talk about more bad bands with great songs. So, that's it. That's it. I think it's time to bid you all the folks at home for the last time in season 1 before the first time in season 2. Good night and farewell. So folks, thank you so 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 much for your time. Please stay strange, be kind and love yourselves
1: yeah totally and create your own music be genuine it'll work better than putting up a total front like variant like literally a whole different front also be honest to your friends and people if you know they can't pull something off and they need to <laughs> don't hide it from them just tell your friends like hey dude like you know keep your day job this whole thing could have been avoided there's no reason those dudes needed to become musicians
0: Oh, boy, am I happy they did. Me too. See you in hell, folks. Good night.